Please turn and open your Bibles, or open your Bibles and turn, it would probably be a little easier, uh, to Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to be beginning in verse 28 this morning, Matthew eight twenty-eight. Matthew eight twenty-eight. hear the word of God. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we have sung this morning, would you speak to us? Would you take your truth? Would you plant it deeply in our hearts? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, work in us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, my introduction this morning could be very short. Qualifying word, could. Um, I, I did think about this. I thought, I am just going to use this introduction. The spiritual realm is real. The spiritual realm is real. I think that that would be enough to introduce what we are looking at in this passage. But I am going to say a few more things. You guys know me better than that, right? Uh, I, I, I think because most of us, if we were to take an exam, we would get the question correct. You know, is the spiritual realm, well, realm real? Well, yes, it is. But functionally, we may not always function as if it is. We would acknowledge that it is cognitively, but we might believe or behave rather like it isn't. Because we have been persuaded through the culture in which we live, through maybe the education that we've received, through the media that we ingest, we have been persuaded even as believers, to be inclined to think that the spiritual realm is just make-believe, that it's merely fantasy. Even as biblically informed believers, we know better, and yet at times we might feel just a little bit squeamish when the demonic is talked about, when Satan is mentioned. We might squirm a little bit in our seats because we have been made to feel like we're some kind of Neanderthals for believing that the spiritual realm is real. But let me say it again, the spiritual realm is real. Even though we cannot see it with our eyes, it is there. And we have to start, as believers at least, we have to start with what we confess about God. And what do we confess about God? I chose not to include this question in our order of worship this morning because I wanted to use it in the sermon. I wanted to focus our attention more on our sin, and I know it ends kind of abruptly, you know, that question about the state in which we're cast. But when we, when we do that in our order of worship, worship, hold on, 
Because we're getting to the gospel. We're going to get there. I know it feels heavy in that moment. I think it's good maybe for us to feel it for a moment. But I wanted to save this question for the sermon to call our attention to one that we, we often use in our order of worship from the larger catechism. What is God? And we answer that question beginning, God is a spirit. God is a spirit, and it goes on, in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, present everywhere, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And so all of those things, all those attributes that we confess, that we believe about God, that we acknowledge that this is what the scriptures have revealed about who God is, we confess all of that from the, that foundational statement that initially says God is a spirit. The spiritual realm is real. God is not a physical being. He is not a created being. He created all things. He exists outside of the created realm. He made the created realm and everything that's in it. But outside of space and time is where he exists as the self-existent one. He has no beginning and no end. And so that's where we start from in our faith. If you've come to the place in your life where you confess and believe that Jesus is your Savior, you, you've had to had this preceding notion that God exists that he is who he says he is before you can understand the claims of Jesus. So we acknowledge that the spiritual realm is real, at least foundationally, because we acknowledge that God is real. But we have to go on because God has some other things to say to us about the spiritual realm, things about angels. And this is where we start to maybe as Presbyterians be a little bit more uncomfortable. Oh, again, we know the answer and we'd pass it on a test. But, you know, how do we make sense of all of this? Angels created beings, immortal, and yet we don't see them. Or at least if we see them, we see them, Scripture tells us, unaware. (laughs) Uh, We don't know it. And among the angels, there are those who, along with Satan, fell. These are angels that are in rebellion against God. Call these demons. They fell and they are in in, in, an unredeemable rejection of God who is their maker. And we know that their destiny is certain. We saw this in our study of Revelation a number of times, that there's a day that is marked, the day of judgment that is coming when not only those of us on earth, but the demons, the fallen angels, including Satan, will be judged and cast away into the abyss or hell forever. And the Bible often refers to this as the day or the time, or there's some other uh, n- uh, numbers for that. But th- the idea that is presented there is found in this text today. The demons bring it up. There's a day that's coming, and they think Jesus is just a little bit early. Now, how the spiritual realm interacts with the physical realm and the physical realm with the spiritual realm is probably where we have the greatest curiosity. And it's also where we have the greatest mystery in terms of what all this looks like. One of the ways that we try to describe and understand the spiritual realm, particularly the fallen, those fallen angels, is through the word or the concept, the idea of evil. We all know that evil is real. We we see it. Um, we've all observed it. We've all studied it in our history books. We hear it in our news reports. We've all experienced it on a personal level, but we have to be careful when we talk about evil not to adopt uh, an Eastern mindset. 
that evil is somehow this nebulous force that is floating out in the universe and is simply opposed. It's a force that's opposed to God. That's not a biblical understanding of what evil is. We might call that the yin and the yang as if there's this equal and opposite opposition to God. It's not what we see in Scripture. Evil, rather, is descriptive of that which is opposed to good and specifically that which is opposed to God. Evil is descriptive of that which is opposed to good and specifically that which is opposed to God. In the same way that we talk about darkness, we describe darkness if we go into a dark room or if you've ever been into a dark cave, you know, where you can't see your hand in front of your face. Darkness is not a thing. It's a description of the absence of something else. Light. Light is a thing. It's an energy. We can measure it. We can observe it and so forth. Same thing with cold. Uh, cold is the absence of heat, heat being an energy source. And so in the same way, evil is the absence of good, but is not an energy, if we can say that itself. So don't, don't get this notion that there's just this force out there that's floating around. Instead, when we talk about evil in that way, we have to understand that it is ascribed to something, to a being. Evil is either personified in a person or in the spiritual realm in a demon or a fallen angel. And so when we see the evidence of evil in our world, we may not understand it. We may not always know what is behind it, but it isn't happening in just some nebulous sense. So I want us to know that this morning. We, we read from Ephesians 6 for our New Testament reading. And in verse 12, we read, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those are all beings that are listed there, created beings. There isn't just a force of evil. And so we want to keep this in mind so that we don't swing the pendulum too far in one direction and be dismissive of it. I think that's our greatest tendency as Presbyterians. We tend to be more dismissive of the spiritual realm. We wouldn't deny it, but we just don't acknowledge it, I think, as, as we should. At the same time, I don't want us to get to the point where we swing the pendulum the other direction and try and find a demon behind every rock, so to speak, right? You know, where everything, you know, the, the milk's spoiled, but it says there's a demon in the fridge, or I didn't get the parking place when I pulled into the grocery store, and you know, there's some demon behind that. We, we don't want to go that direction either, We may not get to see, and I say get to, we may not get to see the kind of demon possessions that we see described here in this passage and in other passages in the gospel accounts, but we do see demonic work and forces and and at work in in our world. We see it every day. And uh, I don't think we need to get uh, making lists there. I think we all acknowledge and and do that. I want us to, though, begin with just a few things that that we can keep in mind, not only as we look at this passage, but we're going to continue to see this theme again and again. So I see this as kind of laying a foundation for the other passages that we'll come to as we study the Gospel of Matthew together uh, that deal with the demonic realm. And so I want to mention just three things that will help us uh, as we keep in mind not only this passage, but also how it applies to our lives. First... Satan is a fallen angel, a created being. He is not equal to God. Okay? There's, there's no threat that, that Satan is going to beat God. We, we don't have to hope. The, 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 the victory has already been achieved. Satan is defeated. He's on a chain, so to speak. But he is not equal in power to God. He is a created being who is opposed to God. His MO really hasn't changed all that much since the garden. 
he tends to work in very similar ways. He's not creative. God is creative and has made all things. Satan is a vandal. He's a copycat, and he tends to do the same things over and over. I wish we were better learners because we don't seem to learn very well, at least I don't, at his tactics. But his tactics tend to be the same. The two things that he postulated in in, uh, in Genesis 3 when we go back to the garden was he started with a question, did God really say? And so he goes after the word of God as revealed, and we see evidences of this even in our own day. The word of God is often attacked. And then he positioned to Adam and Eve that they could be like God if they would just eat of this tree. So he, he played on their pride, which again is one of Satan's favorite MOs. If you look at the sin struggles in your life, and this is what we're going to be looking at in Sunday school, by the way, so I'll use this as a, a, a two second promo. We're going to be looking at sin struggles in our lives and how we fight sin in our lives. This is a providentially a great kind of primer uh, for us to launch into the Sunday school study uh, starting next week. But if you look at the battle with sin in your heart, you will find the, uh, the, the element of pride is, is, is always there <laughs> uh, because of something that you want that you didn't get or something that you got that you didn't want or something that you think you should have or whatever the case, there's always this element of pride. Satan's MO really hasn't changed all that much. And so as he questions the word of God and after he prods our pride, we need to make sure that we, in battling against sin, know the word of God. This is where Satan begins the attack. Next, we need to understand that spiritual battle is inward. The spiritual battle is inward. We could say that it's in our minds or our hearts. It is that internal conversation that we have within our own selves Yes, we all talk to ourselves. It's called being aware. <laughs> uh, we know what's going on, and we do have conversations with ourselves. Um, this is where the battle against sin begins. It's where it's, it's fought. What are we going to believe in any one moment? Because when we choose to sin, we are choosing to not believe in the gospel. We, in that moment of sin, we reject the truth of the gospel as believers. We reject what Christ has done for us when we volitionally sin. But it, it comes in different forms. It, it comes when we're, we're, we're tempted to be afraid of something. Do we choose faith or fear? Uh, it comes when we uh, are, are tempted to lust or fight against it. It comes when we can choose hate or love or when we will choose to accept correction or reject it in pride. Uh, in, in each of these moments, it's this inward battle that we fight. So before we ever engage in any sinful speech or action, there is an inward war that we fight against sin, which is why in 2 Corinthians 5, we are told to take every thought captive. The battles, that's, that's where it begins. Before it ever gets out here uh, in our speech, in our eyes, whatever, we, we, we're fighting internally. By the way, that passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, is a great companion to what we read in Ephesians 6. So Ephesians 6 being the more well-known, dealing with spiritual warfare. But take a look at 2 Corinthians 10 this afternoon and look at what it has to say about the battle. The third thing that I want us to remember is, is about what we read in Ephesians 6, and that is that list of spiritual uh, weaponry, so to speak, 
uh, we're familiar with that. The, the, you know, that we've got the, the shield and the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, sword of the spirit. And we understand that there's this weaponry, so to speak, of, of, of what we use to fight the spiritual battle. But I think what we forget when we look at that list, maybe we memorize that list at some point, but we forget verse 18. When Paul concludes that list, he goes on to say in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, we're so familiar with Ephesians 6 that we don't even hear what Paul is saying. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Do you hear the repetition? It's repetition upon repetition. It's repetition cubed, right? Paul is cubing prayer here. It's as if he is saying, breathe at all times while breathing with air. He's driving a point home. He's trying to get us to listen about the importance of prayer. Why is prayer so important? Well, you will never be successful in any spiritual fight or battle apart from prayer. And this is because the battle isn't yours. The battle is the Lord's. And if you are not calling out to the one who is the champion, you will not see any kind of success in and of your own strength. The only way you will ever see any fruit, positively fruit, spirit-led, spirit-built fruit, is by calling out in prayer. We are to call to the one who is there to help us in time of need. Now, much more can be said about the spiritual realm. I'm going to stop there, and I've compressed the sermon. Don't worry. I'm looking at the clock. Uh, but I wanted to lay that foundation before we get into to look at what is, for many of us, a familiar story. But keep these things in mind, because I think they're helpful not only in understanding the passage, but in how this fits into our lives. You may never encounter a scary, demon-possessed person like we see described here, but you are involved daily in a spiritual battle. Moment by moment, there is a spiritual battle that you are involved in, and it requires a helper. It requires a savior. It is not a battle for you to be engaged in alone. And so looking now at verse 28, Matthew sets the scene, and when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. I've made this comment almost every week now, and I may keep doing it, but just for folks who haven't been with us, I'm trying not to harmonize. The tendency when you do a study in the gospel is you want to get as much meat as you can, and so you want to go and see what the other gospel writers have to say about it. And this is another episode that all three of the synoptics capture in their gospels. And so Mark and Luke also tell the same story. Just like with the the account last week in the storm, uh, all three of them captured that. And just like last week, Matthew's is the briefest. It's the shortest of the three accounts. I'm not going to try and harmonize it, but I do. I will reference the other gospels when I think they're particularly necessary to understand a point. But I want us to remind that we're trying to get what Matthew is going after. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience so that they might know that Jesus is the Messiah. And what he's choosing to do at this portion in his gospel is help them to see his power. His power. He is just, Matthew's just just shown that Jesus has the power to heal disease. Uh, and then after that, power over the, the physical realm that he could say to the storm, be still. And he quieted the storm. And now in this passage, power over the spiritual realm to cast out demons. Uh, another difference that we see, and I only want to mention this so it doesn't trip anyone up. Young people, please pay attention. 
Uh, when you go off to college, if you do that, you might hear people, uh, that's a common place where people like to attack the scriptures. And one of the things that you will hear say is, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. And this is one of the favorite places where people like to suggest there's a contradiction. Mark and Luke both say there was one demoniac. And Matthew here, as we've just read, tells us that there is two. Um, I remember hearing Sproul deal with this first. I'm sure I heard other people deal with it, but, you know, he's kind of memorable. And he just very plainly said, if there was two, then there was one. And so it's not a contradiction. And that's, that, it's, it, 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 that's true. If there was two, there was also one. But we do this all the time. If, if, uh, if Bev came up to me with the fellowship committee after church to, announced to me plans to purchase a chocolate fountain that we could use to dip fruit and goodies in. I'm not suggesting anything. This just really randomly just popped into my head, Bev. I'm just uh, picking on this. But Bev tells me all of these things, and different people observe this. One person might say, I saw the fellowship committee talking to Seth after church. And another person who observed it from over here might say, I, I saw Bev talking to Seth after church. And both are correct. You know, in this case, it was likely that one of the, these demoniacs was more vocal, the more dominant, maybe the one who did all or most of the speaking, but this is not a contradiction to describe the same account in this way. And if you uh, ever listen to uh, uh, police talk about uh, incident reports and they get eyewitness reports, uh, this is this is true all the time, right? People give different perspectives. So not a contradiction. Uh, there were two. And by the way, Matthew was there. Uh, not that I'm trying to pit Matthew against Mark and uh, uh, Luke, but um, Matthew was there. He was a, he was a, a, an eyewitness to this event. And so Jesus, having just calmed the storm, they sailed across the Sea of Galilee. They're now on the eastern shore, and they they get out of the boat. They come up the shore into this uh, uh, this new. It's a Gentile region. We we know this not just from history, but the fact of. The animals that are there, right? They're herding pigs. You wouldn't have seen any uh, Jewish uh, pig herders. And so this is a Gentile nation. They've traveled across. And we know that the it is, it's not Jesus that pursues the demoniacs. It's the demoniacs that pursue Jesus. They come out to him. Uh, they come out, we're told, out of the tombs. Now, these were caves in the hillsides, and some of these can still be seen today in this region. Um, and they were simply, you know, they were used to, uh, to bury people. And so um, these two demoniacs just found this to be his shelter, a place that they could live. And so they had made, in, in essence, a cemetery their home. Uh, this is not describing dead people coming up from the from the grave. This, that's not what is being described here. Some people could try and read it that way, but that's not what Matthew is telling us there. They, they lived there. Uh, they slept in the caves where people were buried. And so they have a reputation of being fierce, scary. This is because they would have been threatening through uh, maybe the things they said, uh, through their behavior, and it was such that the people in the region around them didn't even want to come around because they were so scary. And then in verse 29, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? We see one of Matthew's favorite words to call our attention to what he's about to tell us. Behold, right? It's Matthew's way of saying, you know, look here, pay attention. I'm about to tell you an important part of the story. Matthew uses this a lot. And here he is, uh, what he's describing is not really the two men speaking, but rather the demons through the men Speaking, And Matthew doesn't tell us what the other gospel accounts tell us, but the demons were legion. They were many. So there are these many demons, and they were speaking through these men, and they're speaking directly to Jesus, and they ask, what have you to do with us? 
a bit of a defense on the offense, right? They're coming out. Uh, they, we're going to see they're on the defense the whole time, but this is, they're feeling a little big for their britches because they think that the time has not yet come. And so they come out, in essence, threatening Jesus. What have you to do with us? What are you going to do? They address him as such, O Son of God. And if we only had Matthew's account, we might think that somehow this was a generic use of a, a son of a God or something, the way that the language could have been used in that time. But again, appealing to the other Gospels, we see that there is a longer title used in both of those Gospels, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And so my point is, is both fit that what, what the disciples were addressing Jesus as is they knew who he was. It's interesting, too, that the first in Matthew's gospel to truly identify who Jesus is as the Son of God Most High are demons here. So they are the ones who announce it. And then if we doubt that, just from the title they use alone, we see this in the second question. Have you come here to torment us before the time? So here we, we get a glimpse into the demonic realm. There's a lot of mystery a lot of things we don't understand about the demonic realm, but here we get a glimpse that they have some knowledge. There is some awareness of the timeline of God, whether it is uh, an awareness of the oracles that have been given to men through revelation or there's some other element of revelation, but they are aware there's a time that's coming and they don't believe yet that it is the time because they are coming out in an almost threatening way, challenging Jesus on this. This, this isn't the day yet. Um, the spiritual realm was kind of amped up when Jesus was on earth. We see this in so many accounts, not just in this one. Unusually amped up. And this is one of these evidences. Now, beyond the acknowledgement of who Jesus is in verse 30, we get this kind of parenthetical phrase that Matthew inserts here, that there's this herd of pigs nearby, and again, Mark's gospel helps us out with not 20 or 40 pigs, but 2,000 pigs. And so for, if we saw 2,000 pigs today, we would say, that's, that's a lot of pigs, right? But in this day and time, and just the scale of how farming was done, this was huge. So this would have probably been lots of families, lots of local businesses that put their herds together and paid people to manage them. But there was a lot of, of economic interest in this significantly sized herd of pigs. Um, so the demons then, after Matthew tells us this herd of pigs is there, the demons then begin begging Jesus in verse 31, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And so now they begin to move back on the defense from the offense because they know their rightful place in subjection to Jesus. These many demons who have possessed these men, have been for some time tormenting not just these men, but the entire region. People were afraid to enter the cemetery. People were afraid to come around out of fear for what these men, uh, these demons were doing in these men. And now they acknowledge that even though these have had the power over this region, now these who have exerted this power now submit to the one who has all power over them. And what they're doing in possessing these two men is is not the most common thing that we have seen. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands of how many people have seen demon possession, but I would say it's probably very few. Um, but even in Scripture, we see very little in terms of demon possession. There's one specific mention of demon possession in the Old Testament, Saul. Uh, the spiritual realm is certainly talked about. It's active. There's, it's no doubt it was there. It's just not talked about a lot. 
in, in the Old Testament, or described rather a lot. And the same is true really in the New Testament, that beyond the Gospels, there's very little by way of demon possession. And so again, the, 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 in the time and life and ministry of Jesus, the spiritual realm was really amplified uh, because the spiritual realm has some insight that what Jesus has come to do is, is, is going to change everything. And of course it did. Now, in our own day, I'm not trying to discount demon possession. It still happens, and we've probably all heard of it. Uh, but it often happens in places and in areas where the demonic realm is pursued. And so these are places that all of us probably have tended to avoid. But there are probably places not far from here. We can probably think of certain cities in our country. Um, there are probably stories that we've heard from around the world where the gospel has not reached, where we have heard of stories of the demonic realm. And so I am not saying these things don't happen. They do. Uh, but they tend to be rare, and they tend to be rarer for us in a, in a nation where the gospel has has uh, is, is pagan and as evil as we are in our day, there is still a much greater presence than there is in places that where the gospel has yet to reach. And so this is what uh, is how we might better understand it. So again, don't want to swing the pendulum too far away where we dismiss it, and we don't want to swing the pendulum the other direction where we see a demon in everything that goes wrong in our lives and where we blame demons for everything that goes wrong. But do understand Satan's agenda. Satan's agenda uh, has always been to destroy. That's what he wants to do. Now, he is, is going to be unsuccessful in that, in, 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 in the big picture. But he'll do as much destruction uh, as he can that, that, that God ultimately allows him to do. Um, Satan, I, I prefer the description of Satan as a vandal. Uh, because he cannot do beyond what God allows him to do. And we see this in the life of Job. Uh, but God does, he's on a chain, but God sometimes lets that chain go pretty far for his own providential purposes, purposes, uh, to accomplish his, for his own glory. And we don't understand it. There's great mystery in this. We often see it in hindsight, understand it in hindsight when we look at either our own history or the history books or we look at scripture and we see how men intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. But sometimes that history can be really long. And if you're in the middle of something right now, uh, it can be incredibly painful and incredibly difficult. And so it can almost feel like, well, God doesn't care. And what I want us to see is that God is at work and he does care. And he is going to accomplish and redeem and make right or make all uh, sad things become unsad or untrue. He is going to he's going to right everything that is wrong. His timeline, though, is not our timeline. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But he will do this. So because of the restraint of the one who is omnipotent, because of his rule and because of his plan, this makes Satan ultimately a vandal. And so he, he knows that he's defeated, but he wants to do as much damage as he can in the meantime. He wants to bring as much sadness and grief and fracture into the world and into the lives of people. Uh, but remember, remember, greater is the one who is in us than Satan. They are not equally opposed. Greater is the one who is in us. Greater is the one who has redeemed us. Greater is the one who rules over all. Now, these demons knew their defeat when they saw Jesus, which is why they sought exile among the pigs. They, they knew it was coming. That they were, you can imagine scanning, you know, looking for a play. They didn't want to be destroyed. They realized that was an option. We're not told what happens with the demons, but they are allowed to go into the pigs, and the pigs are destroyed. Uh, the pigs run down the hill. They, they are sent with one word from Jesus, the word go. 
He just simply gives them permission. Notice, they need permission. They cannot do this on their own volition, but they need permission. And so they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And so again, just as with the pattern of Satan, Satan wants to destroy, he wants to bring fracture, so do his demons, and that's what they do. They destroy this herd of pigs. And the question comes up, why would Jesus allow this? Doesn't Jesus care about the created beings? Doesn't he care about animals? And we know that, of course, he does because he made them. Uh, If we peek ahead in Matthew's gospel to chapter 10, we read, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so quite plainly, these two men who were redeemed were of more value than 2,000 pigs. This isn't to say Jesus doesn't care about the animal kingdom. The opposite is true from what we just read, that not a sparrow will fall, right? But it is to say that those who are created in his image are of more value. Men and women are made with souls in the image of God to reflect his glory and designed to live with him forever. You have greater value than animals. Now, I know you're thinking about pets right now. Stop it, okay? You, before your creator, whatever you think of your fuzzy friend, have more value before God than, yes, even your pets. And that is a wonderful thing because you have a soul, you have awareness, you have cognition, and you were designed to be with God forever. And so the redemption of these two men far outweighed any economic loss that day. Now, understandably, the herdsmen didn't grasp this. They just realized that they had made probably the biggest mistake of their career uh, as herdsmen, and they lost a considerable sum of money. And so in 33, we read, they ran, they fled, going into the city. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Matthew draws our attention here to what they told. Yes, they, 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 gave, they probably gave a strong defense for what happened. It wasn't our fault. You know, we weren't negligent. But they, you know, he points out, that, that he that these herdsmen told the city what specifically had been done for these two possessed men that that, that they had been delivered from this demon possession. Um, the townspeople heard this, and they ran out to see that these men who had suffered this for what what to them they might have described as demon possession, or maybe they described it as some kind of mental or emotional uh, stress or distress. But they had been changed; they had been delivered. And so they come out with this in mind, and yet we don't see the warmest greeting given to Jesus. Look in verse 34. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, Matthew doesn't give us the reasoning behind it. We can get what they might have been thinking. Uh, But again, if we understand Matthew's point in each of these accounts that we've looked at most recently in chapter 8, that Matthew is ascribing power to Jesus, that we might see that he is the Messiah. And so just as the disciples were terrified of the storm, and Jesus calms the storm, he says, be still, and they're more terrified of Jesus. The same is happening here. That although the the townspeople were fearful of these two demon-possessed men, they are now introduced and come face-to-face with one who has power to speak and deliver that stronghold of demon possession from these two men's lives. And they are filled with fear and dread, and they want Jesus to leave. Now, maybe they also were thinking about the loss, the economic loss, and 
you know, there, there's a lesson maybe there for us to consider that people are more important than things and so forth. But that's not Matthew's main point. Matthew's main point is that, that we would see the all-surpassing power of Jesus over all things that we would describe as evil. And that's what I want us to leave with today. That we would see the all-surpassing beauty and power of Jesus over everything that we would describe as evil. Everything we've witnessed, everything that we have experienced that has been done to us, even things that we have been involved in ourselves. That the all-surpassing beauty and power of Jesus supersedes all of these things. Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, we have hope and healing from anything that we have been through. It may not take, it may not make the pain disappear. It often doesn't. But we have hope in the midst of the pain. It may not answer all of our questions, but we have assurance in the midst of our wonderings. It may at times leave us feeling lost and sad and undone, but we have a peace that passes all understanding in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has conquered sin and death by shedding his blood on the cross. We have seen both sin and death and Satan and his demons all defeated. Defeated. Jesus is the champion. He is the victor. And that same beauty and power of Jesus is what I want us to leave as we start our week. Because right now is not our greatest moment of temptation, most likely. It's coming. Right right now, we, we tend to have our minds a little more focused, a little more, uh, we've put some distractions behind us, we're not weighed down, but there are moments coming for all of us, they may come in just moments from when we leave here, that uh, we're going to get something that we don't want, and it's going to make us mad, or we're not going to get something that we want, and it's going to make us mad, and we're going to be tempted to sin in our anger. <coughs> There are going to be times that we are going to be inclined to fear and worry when unexpected things happen that we didn't see coming. And we're going to want to run to the dread instead of to the Savior. There are going to be moments when we're looking at screens and images flash across them that lead our imaginations to places they don't need to go. And we're going to be challenged with the temptation to pursue purity or to give in to lust. When we look to the left and to the right, whether it's here whether it's when we pull in our driveway and we look at our neighbor on either side, whether it's at work or wherever you go during the week, that tractor beam of envy is going to lock on to us and we're going to start wanting whatever the neighbor has parked in their driveway or, or has built behind their house or whatever it is that we're thinking about. And we're going to be tempted to give in to envy. On and on and on, our fight against sin is present in our lives. It is a spiritual battle. If all we had was our own strength and resolve, we would be a most pitiful people. There would be no hope for us. But in our fight against sin, we have a great Savior who bled and died to take away our sin, and so we must look up. We must look up to the one who not only died to take it away, but who lived with a perfect record that he now gives to us and credits to our account that we might be called righteous. We need to look up and realize that he has given us his omnipotent spirit to dwell within us, fulfilling the promise that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Because of all the riches of Christ that have been given to us, all the riches in the heavenlies are ours in him, we who are trusting in him can battle sin with success. But the battle is not ours. You don't become the champion. You are not the victor. He is. And he grants us victory 
because of what he has done so that we are now called more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And so as we fight through his power, the outcome, and listen to this, the outcome is always humility and gratefulness. True spirit-led transformation doesn't produce self-righteousness. There's a litmus test, okay? There's a litmus test for the Spirit's fruit in our lives. Self-righteousness, that's a false test, right? If you change the color on the litmus strip, that's false. Pride is an oxymoron. Proud Christian, that's an oxymoron, right? It doesn't produce self-righteousness. Instead, True spirit-led transformation develops in us a gospel, it develops in us a gospel reality that, that, but for the grace of God, I would destroy my life in sinfulness. It produces us, in us a desire to encourage and build each other up, as long as it's called today, as long as we're alive, to build one another up in the faith instead of constantly tearing everyone down in all the ways that they are wrong. I see Christians fall into this trap so often. It's like they're on a lazy Susan spinning around and they're going, they're wrong on this and they're wrong on this and they're wrong on this. And they can tell you how everybody else is wrong and how they've all figured it out. That is not spirit-led gospel transformation in the life of a believer because spirit-led gospel transformation always develops humility and a desire to build one another up as we have been commanded. In other words, when the Spirit does this transformative work as we fight against sin in the power of Christ, it turns us from looking inward to all our best efforts to looking upward and seeing the beauty and the power of Jesus who saved us and is sanctifying us for his glory. So look today and see Jesus and marvel, just as these people did, the disciples when he calmed the storm and now these townspeople as they see him cast out demons because he has conquered sin on our behalf He fights in our place. He strengthens us to endure the battles that we are in so that we are now more than conquerors in him. And he is praised as worthy, lovely, holy, and good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, our champion, our victor, the one who has done what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you that sin and death are defeated and that the demonic realm, his, there's a day, it's named, it's coming. And yet, Lord, we're here now. And that day has not yet come, and sin has not been reined in. We see its evidence everywhere. It's in the world around us. We feel it in the temptation from the evil one. We know it in our own hearts. We fight against the flesh. Would you give us eyes to look up and to see Jesus in all of his glory, for us who bled and died to take away our sin, that we would trust him as our champion, trust him as the one who battles for us, trust him as the one who has defeated sin so that we might walk in humility and faithfulness and obedience. We pray all this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.